As we begin our message this morning from Mark, I'm going to read the last chapter in the Old Testament, give you a few moments to turn there to Malachi, if you wish, Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, <clears throat> we, learn, um, we learn somewhat of the, the final days of the Lord's coming and um, what He is going to bring to this earth. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Mount Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> there are two names um, here in these last few words from the Old Testament that I want you to remember. Moses and Elijah. Yes. Stick them in the back of your mind for now, Moses and Elijah. Here are the books of the Bible for you in my little bookcase up here. The top two shelves, the Old Testament, the bottom two shelves are the New Testament. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, one of the minor prophets with a major message, <laughs> talked about the day of the Lord. And after Malachi spoke, <clears throat> what comes next? Four hundred silent years. After this incredible announcement from Malachi about the Lord coming, we have 400 silent years. And after those 400 silent years, what do we hear? I hope not. We hear a baby crying in Bethlehem. After 400 years of hearing the day of the Lord, we hear a baby crying. That's not what we expected to hear. And then we begin the Gospels. 
these Old Testament prophets spoke 400 silent years, we heard then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 9 serves as a kind of segue, a, a go-between, this is profound, between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Between the events that transpired in chapter 8, and chapter 8 included Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. And with that understanding, Jesus begins to explain to them what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah. And he said, I'm the Messiah that will, that will be killed, I will rise again, and I'm coming back. Peter rebuked him for that. And after Peter's rebuke, Jesus said, here is the kind of discipleship. If you want to follow me, here's what you do. Number one, you deny yourself. And Jesus laid out the parameters then for what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to the point of being willing to give your life in fact, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Pretty heavy stuff. And then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What do you suppose the disciples were thinking when they heard this? I imagine some of them might have been saying, all right, the, he is going to show himself as Messiah. What, what is it going to be? A, a, several days, a weeks, a month, couple years, but he's finally going to show himself the Messiah we were expecting. He will come to power and Rome will be no more. I wonder if that was going through their minds. That obviously didn't happen in their lifetime. And some suggest that this seeing the kingdom of God come with power, some believe that that may be referring kind of to the total of these events of Jesus' death and His burial and His resurrection and His, his um, appearances and His ascension into heaven, the, the, the power of the kingdom of God. And some believe it refers to the event that we are going to look at this morning, the transfiguration. And some believe it's kind of a, a combination of B and C. That seeing Him in all of His glory and power at the transfiguration, at His, at his resurrection, His ascension, all of that, these men were going to see that. Some of them. One, of course, wasn't around for the resurrection. And what follows is what we call the transfiguration. When Jesus appeared there in all his glory, brilliance, Luke calls it dazzling white. Matthew says white is light. Here's how Mark saw it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
Luke adds to this account, he led them up the high mountain to pray, and it was in the middle of prayer, it was in the middle of Jesus praying that he was transfigured. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. I told you to put those two names away for a little bit, and here they are. Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Wonder what they were saying. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, that one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Mark places these uh, events, the setting of this passage, Mark places these events between Jesus' passion announcement when he tells the disciples, I'm going to be killed. Chapter 8, verse 31, the first passion announcement, which Peter reacts against. Chapter 9, verse 31, he tells them again. Chapter 10, verses 32 and 3, he tells them again. And in between the first and the second is Jesus' call for discipleship and this transfiguration as he was praying. The word transfiguration, if we would change Greek letter for English letter one at a time, we would get the word uh, close to the word that we use, that we say metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, change, transformation. And that word, metamorphosis, is used four times in the New Testament. Once in Matthew about the transfiguration. Once in Mark about the transfiguration. By the way, Luke doesn't use that word. Luke says, um, his face became another. While he was praying, while Jesus was praying, his face became or was changed to Another form. That's, that's how Luke saw that. But we have it twice in the New Testament regarding the, transfer, the, the, the uh, transfiguration. And then Paul uses this, this word in Romans 12, 2, when he says to believers, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul uses it also in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, says that we are being transformed, changed from one glory to another, day at a time. We're being transformed. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each um, write about the transfiguration. The Spirit of God uses each of them to share just a, a little bit different picture of it. Matthew tells us the disciples were on their faces from excessive fear. 
Matthew tells us that Jesus went to them and touched them, encouraging them um, as he did on the stormy lake. Mark says they're white like snow, like, like the ESV here translates, like no one on earth could bleach that, that white. Mark tells us that when the disciples were talking about this, after Jesus talked about the rising, raising from the dead, they were wondering what, what that's all about. Luke tells us Jesus was engaged in prayer. Luke tells us that when they went up the mountain to pray and Jesus took his three disciples along, get this, they fell asleep. We... We find out they did that later, and Jesus in the garden, they fell asleep. My, we're critical of those guys, aren't we? They should have stayed awake yeah, like we would have. And I wonder if it was not, not so much from physical, but the spiritual dynamic of what was going on. It was too heavy for them to bear, too heavy. Jesus just went and shook them awake. He said, it's okay. I got a, a couple of questions about this particular passage. And one, one question is, why Peter, James, and John? Peter and the sons of thunder. James and John. Um... Invited to this magnificent, life-changing scene, these, these three are given this majestic glimpse into the, the glorified Jesus. I, I, I believe it gives them a greater understanding of His divinity, of who He is, His divine glory, and His coming kingdom. And it brought them reassurance. These, these men are going to be leaders in the church. <clears throat> these, these men... Um, Jesus is going to hand over, can I say this, enterprise, the, the church, the body of Christ. They were going to be the initial leaders in the church. This event had a profound, profound impact on their lives. We saw Him. We saw Him in all His glory. John refers to that in the first chapter of his book. We saw His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw that, John says. And Peter talked about it. Later, Peter um, wrote a, we call it an epistle. And look what Peter wrote. He said, for when Jesus received honor and glory from the Father and, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic Glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we heard His voice, boom, uh, born from heaven. We're with Him on the holy mount. We saw it. We were there. We heard it. It's incredible. He at least also said to Mark, we were also terrified we slept a little bit. Peter says, I was there. We were there. We, we saw it. The, the, the dazzling white, you would not believe it. 
We heard that voice. Jesus woke them up and maybe in a little bit of a stupor from sleep and then seeing this scene, Peter blurts out, it's, it's good that we're here. Yes, Peter, it's good that you're here. Let, let's, let's build some huts. Let's build some booths. What was he getting at? I, I wonder if it was a little bit, man, it's good to be here. Let's, let's stay here for a while. Let's make it kind of semi-permanent. I, <laughs> pardon the comparison. I, I used to feel that way about summer camp. Remember the last night of camp around the campfire and everybody's saying to everybody else what God did for them this summer and you just, man, you feel warm and then you got to go home. We should stay here a while. Let's build some tents. And then, and then Mark adds this note for us. Peter said this because he didn't know what to say. Because he was terrified. He was terrified. I've always gone to this passage, been pretty critical of Peter. What else does a guy say when he doesn't know what to do? Let's build something. (laughs) He just didn't know what to do. what to say. He was terrified. Um, Back in the Old Testament, there are a number of feasts that God taught Israel, um, commanded them to, to keep. Several feasts One feast was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month. And God said to Israel, on the 15th day of the seventh month, I want you you to do nothing. I want that to be, I want that to be a sacred rest. A sacred rest. Rest. Don't do any of your ordinary chairs, uh, chores. Just rest. Just rest. And then for the next seven days, I want you to eat, feast. In fact, bring some, bring some of that food. We're going to have food offerings to the Lord. Now, what happened prior to that is that they um, they reaped a harvest. And after the harvest was in, on the 15th day of the seventh month, they were to do nothing. They were to rest. And then for seven days, they were to bring some food as a food offering to the Lord. And then they were to have another holy convocation at the end of that. And during those seven days when they were feasting, they were also supposed to live in booths, temporary shelters. In fact, I didn't put it up here for you, but you, you can Google it and find it. Google something like booths in Israel. And they showed a picture of modern-day Israel, and they put up um, the most incredible little 
wooden shacks all over the streets of Israel and in the high risers up high on their little decks. It's incredible. They still celebrate it. It's called the Feast of Booths. And God said two things I want you to remember. First of all, it's the end of the harvest. I want you to know that that I provided this for you and we're going to feast as a celebration of what I've provided. But you're going to live in these booths to remember when I took you out of Egypt. Remember, I, I, I had the, the people of Israel living in these temporary huts, tents, booths. I want you to remember that. I don't want you to forget that. And... And then there's a uh, passage from Zechariah. This is concerning the last days. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, they shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. What's that got to do with this? I wonder if this blubbering... Peter, I wonder if he may have said something brilliant there. I don't know. That's purely speculation. Or maybe the Spirit of God put it in this Peter at a time when he didn't know what else to say. Let's make three tents. Is this maybe a little glimpse into that time when the Feast of Booths will be re-inaugurated at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know. James Boyce wrote, To be invited as hearers and observers to see this transfigured Jesus is to be invited into the story, and by story I don't mean fiction, story, this event, this account to be sure. But it is also to be invited into a story in which discipleship means to live with ambiguity, living by faith while trusting the one who promises. Living by faith while trusting the one who promises. Why Peter, James, and John? Why Elijah and Moses? Why were those two chosen? Well, for one thing, their deaths or their passings were rather mysterious. Um, Elijah, the Scripture says, didn't die. He was translated, taken up before them. By the way, Elijah did a miracle where a, a woman who was down to her last meal... Elijah provided so that the oil and her flour just didn't run out. Jesus did something like that when he fed the 5,000 and 4,000. And then Elijah raised a child from the dead. Jesus did that too. You could, you could go on and count the parallels there. Some of, the, some of the pictures we have, does this one show that? Can't quite see it. Some of the pictures of the transfiguration, some of the uh, artist renditions, I should say, of the transfiguration shows Moses with the tablets. 
He always has those tablets there. We're reminded of the law. Moses representing the law. By the way, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. And Moses also represents the Exodus. By the way, I asked a little bit ago, what were these guys talking about? Luke says that Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus about his departure. And when you look at that word in the Greek, it says they were talking about his exodus. Just reminders again and again. You see, Moses went up the mountain and he and his countenance turned brilliant. And Moses took some of the leaders with him. The 70 elders went up partway, but he took... Um, he took Joshua with him up the mountain. Jesus takes these comingly. There's just some parallels happening all over this. But let's look at this next, next paragraph beginning in um, Mark chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So as they're walking down, he tells them this, and they, the disciples, kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they ask him, so why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, and Jesus here agreed with the scribes, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So they asked the question, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come? And Jesus said, yes, Elijah does have to come first. And then he shares with them a question. Why is it spoken about the Son of Man that he's going to suffer? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Who is this Elijah that he's talking about? Elijah come back to life? Well, I, according to Scripture, he never died. But I tell that Elijah has come. In Elijah's day, in the Old Testament, there was a, a woman who hated Elijah very much. Jezebel wanted to get rid of him, wanted to kill him. When Elijah came in the New Testament, not the reincarnated Elijah, but a man in the spirit and power of Elijah named John the Baptist, there was a woman who wanted to get rid of him too. And she did. She said to her daughter, ask the king for John the Baptist's head on a platter. I want him dead. And Jesus said, they did to him whatever they pleased. So I'm speculating this week, man, this sounds like John the Baptist. And then I go back to the Matthew account, and Matthew tells us, then the disciples understood that he was speaking about John the Baptist. No speculation needed. This Elijah came first as a messenger in the person of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came with this, in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord to inaugurate these last days when Jesus would come and set everything right.
And the disciples heard this voice, and they looked up, and it was only Jesus there, no more Elijah and Moses, and they heard a voice, this is my son, listen to him. Not to Moses, the law, not to Elijah, the prophets anymore, but listen to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and of the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment. Listen to him. Uh, One more question, and that is, what is the significance of Jesus' transformation, of his transfiguration? Something happens here, kind of a turning point. By the way, from here on in the book of Mark, there aren't as many miracles anymore. Jesus turns to focus on his disciples and explain to them, rather than teaching the masses, especially he trains his disciples and teaches them. So the significance here for, well, let's start with Jesus. The significance for Jesus is just the affirmation of perfect oneness with the Father before he descends into the valley of the shadow of death. Once more, the Father demonstrating this radiance, this brilliance, and with the voice, this is my Son. Significance for the apostles. It it affirms their faith. It gives them comfort for Jesus is about to suffer. And they are going to suffer too, Jesus told them. But remember that segue? Chapter 9, verse 1. Some of you are are standing here. You won't taste death till you see the kingdom of God coming. He shared with them first, here are the demands of discipleship. You're going to suffer. But before he just turned them loose to suffer, he showed them a glimpse of himself in all his glory. This is what you're going to go through, but here's what you have to look forward to. That kind of relevant for believers today? Here's what you're going to go through. Look at the glory. Look at the glory. What are the significance for us? As I... As I look there at that um, transfiguration, there's, there's, there's something else that I see there, and that is I see, I see Jesus in all His holiness. I see Him in His faithfulness as the one who has, has fulfilled all of His prom- uh, promises to us from the Old Testament. I, I see in Jesus a patience there, patient when He comes to dis- His disciples rather than chewing on them for falling asleep again. Wake up. Watch. Listen. I want to I talk before we go this morning about the theology of Jesus' transfiguration. What's, what's going on in the, the theology? No, number one, Jesus is our righteousness. There's a, there's a reason for all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, telling us of the brilliance, showing us the, the incredible brightness, dazzling white, like light. Jesus represents, Jesus is pure, He's righteous. Fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, He's, he's the Holy One. 
the only way that you and I can have a relationship with God the Father is through Jesus' righteousness. A friend sent me a, an, an account this week, a, a speaker who was at a church, and he, he said, just to, just to show you visibly what's going on here, there's a spot in the back of the church back there, and that, that area back there represents um, Christianity that is based on what I can do, Christianity that is based on... Um, all of my efforts to hang on to what, what Christ has given me. And there's a spot over here, and that spot will represent all that Christ is. My, my faith is based entirely upon what, what Christ is. Now, I want you to think about it. I want you to get up and go to that spot or to that spot. That spot there that represents I'm, I'm holding on. Everything I can do in my works, I'm holding on to what, what, what Christ has, has given me. And over there, it's all of Christ. Two people went over there. Two people in that church went over there. They understood it's all of Christ, nothing of my own. What are we not teaching? In a moment of self-satisfaction a few years ago I tried figuring up I've I've preached several thousand sermons in my 43 years that ought to that ought to be good for something that spot nothing it's nothing remember these this is old days young people but we used to get a little pin for perfect attendance in Sunday school I had it's about down to here. And about that time, there was a song that came out, a funny little song about a guy that tripped on his Sunday school pins <laughs> all the way down there. Doesn't count for anything. Oh, it's good. It's good that you're, you're in Sunday school, and it's good that you're learning, but it doesn't count for anything for eternity. It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. It's His righteousness. That's the theology of that transfiguration and, and that Christ is divine. He, he demonstrated that there to those, those men, those future church leaders. He's, his glory glimpses heaven's glory, the, the dazzling white and those heavenly visitors and the voice, this is my son, this is my son, this is the divine, this is God the Son. A third point of theology is that Jesus will return and will reign. He gave us a glimpse of it. And he said to his disciples, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. I'm, I'm going to rise again, chapter 8, verse 31. And um, I'm going to come again, chapter 8, verse 38. I'm coming back. And we got a glimpse of that. Jesus thus far has demanded secrecy. Don't go and tell anyone. Someday he's going to be incredibly conspicuous. And the fourth is that Jesus alone must be worshipped. His transfiguration while anticipating his coming in radiance and, 
and, and in holiness, it demands our worship, our silence, our adoration in awe as we are invited to participate in, in that holiness. By the way, this isn't the first time um, or the only time we've heard that voice from heaven. Remember at Jesus' baptism, that voice boomed down, This is my Son, in who I am delighted. And at the transfiguration, This is my Son, listen to Him. Later, before His passion, Jesus was was uh, speaking with the disciples and then he was praying and, and the voice came from heaven, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. And it wasn't a voice that we could hear with... It wasn't always with words. But that is... Death, voice thundered and shook in the darkness. And each time that voice pointed unmistakably to Jesus Christ, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. You can't miss it. You cannot miss Him. If you miss Him, you will miss Him to your eternal peril. Let's close on this note. Jesus shone in brilliant, brilliant whiteness. Jesus tells us in Matthew that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. We too ultimately at Jesus' transformation, we glimpse just a taste. But I tell you, what a, what a future, what a future awaits the followers of Jesus. And what assurance, what confidence in our lives right now because we know Him. Father, thank You for this scene that we can um, experience again through your word with the disciples. Thank you for your patience in showing them. Thank you for understanding their need to see the, the brilliance. Thank you for understanding our need to see the dazzling white light, the glory of God. In the days that are dark, the days that are dreary as prophecy showed in those days, oh, that we know the Savior, Jesus Christ, and be assured in our lives right now of His presence, of the fact that we are made righteous not by our works, but by His righteousness, and thereby can come into Your presence. What a gift, what assurance, what confidence is ours in Christ, in whose name I pray.